So, Berto, a long time ago, I asked people on Facebook to submit various different random things they wanted us to talk about, like short questions. It wouldn't take an entire episode. And we got so many that I keep sort of sprinkling these in. Drizzling. I think I asked people like two and a half months ago, and we still have some to get to. So what do you say we get to them? Let's do it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, bro? My name is Humberto Castaneda. I manufacture chofu. We, <laughs> we have a special guest with us, Michael Drain, future Dr. Michael Drain. You, Wel- welcome you, to the podcast. Thank you, boys. You're Hello. laughing. Why, why are you laughing? Because I just love your setup. I love hearing, like, I'm as excited as the listeners are to hear what your job My is going setup. to be. I don't get it. I just love it. Do you like chofu, by the way? Love it. Okay. Love it. Absolutely. Dr. Michael Drain is uh, ready to be hired. If you want to hire him as a therapist in Seattle, you can contact him at... Uh, Mindful Remedy. Mindful Remedy Mm -hmm. is the website? At Gmail. You can email me there. Okay. Yeah. And you are also a person who has a podcast called Unpopular Culture? Unpopular Culture Podcast. True crime and psychology. And uh, I'm sure anybody listening to your show knows me, but... What's what's one of your more recent episodes? I just did a serial killer analysis on Ed Gain, the guy that inspired uh, Silence of the Lambs and Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I have coming up a analysis on a cult, a female-led cult that recruits members on YouTube. Female-led cult that recruits. So the cult member is a female, which you don't traditionally think of that. So it's kind of interesting, you know. You know what Ed Gein said about women? What? You mean the the waiter at the canal bar? No, serial murderer in the fifties and sixties. Anyways, he said, uh, "When I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think of two things. For one part of me thinks, you know, I'd like to take her out and buy her flowers. You know, oh yeah. What does the other part think?" What her head would look like on a stick. <laughs> ha! How is this funny? I don't think this is Ed Gain. I think this is a movie. Some people out there might recognize the quote. So, Bird Box. They want us to talk about Bird Box. Uh, Birdo, what did you think of Bird Box? So, I actually enjoyed it before I, I, I... The only thing I knew about Bird Box is that everyone was talking about it. And I had sort of seen a headline about like... You know, people hating Bird Box or something, but I didn't know why, what, who, anyone. So I, I, I wanted to watch it before it got spoiled because I was like, oh, I bet you it's one of those things I got to watch. So I watched it and I enjoyed it. I definitely have lots of little issues and plot holes and things, but I did enjoy it. And afterwards, I went online and looked at what the hell everyone was hating, hating it so much for. Why did people hate it so much? I mean, a lot of it had to do with the, the I, th- I think they were saying, well, it copied this movie or it copied that movie. It's nothing original, blah, blah, blah. They also, a lot of them were tearing apart the, the kind of plot holes in the setup. Uh, I think there was some Sandra Bullock hate happening as well. Who hates Sandra Bullock? Uh, I don't know. She's lovely. Yeah. What, did you see it, Bird Box? No. I saw the Netflix preview, though. So we're going to not spoil it because why? Because uh, I think it, it's definitely a yeah. spoilable movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I liked it too. I, I actually, while I was watching, it's got 62% of Rotten Tomatoes, which isn't bad. It's not terrible, no. Um, and I think probably reflects a fair... Because yeah. it's, it's not like, you know, Citizen Kane or anything. But No, no, no. But it's, you know, it's a good... And people think it's like a, a knockoff of A Quiet Place, for example. Certainly, that was one of the ones they would throw out, yeah. But the thing is, is this movie... Because A Quiet Place was what, like a year ago? Yeah. Uh, 
uh, Bird Box was probably written 10 years ago. It's, well, it's based on a book. It's a right? book, yeah. But the screenplay was probably, you know... In production, in works for like, years. Yeah. For like, people, they when they see movies come out back to back, they're like, oh, it's just a copy. It's like... You can't copy that fast. <laughs> like, it's it, when... It, this is a similar thing when Pearl Jam became really popular, and then Stone Temple Pilots was became popular like, right. like a couple months later. And everyone was like, oh... The lead singer, Stone Temple Pilots, he's he's just copying right, Eddie, uh, Vedder. Eddie Vedder, and it's like you realize they re- not only did they record the album a long time before, but this guy has been singing this way for probably a long time. No, no, no. Up until the day before they watched Pearl Jam on TV, they're like, "Why can't we be successful?" And the singer's like, "I have no idea, guys." I and then they, they and then they watch Pearl Jam, and they're like, "Oh, we got, we got it." Yeah, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do have a, an honest defender of this, though. Do you guys remember that uh, in the late '90s, Deep Impact and Armageddon both came out at the same yeah. time? Right. Essentially, the same exact plot. Those might have gotten they, lit at the same time, and I think they were in the theaters at the exact <laughs> yeah, same time too. Very similar, right? And so, it, when that's actually uh, one of the examples that they give to show that there are cultural movements that are out of our awareness. It's the same thing. Like my little brother, he's forty-two now. He's born in nineteen seventy-seven. His his name is Kevin. When my parents picked his name. They considered Kevin to be one of the most weirdest, unique names they'd ever heard. <laughs> and, and that's laughable now, especially to that generation. Right. Kevin was possibly in the top three names from that time. Yeah. How did millions upon millions of parents land on Kevin thinking <laughs> it was unique? It, right. just, it just doesn't make any sense. And so... Uh, so the Deep Impact Armageddon uh, uh, thing is like, what was going on in our society or Hollywood that began the process for those two movies five years prior to those movies coming out? And it is quite possible that, you know, like these studios do commission all sorts of like studies and, and it, you know, they could have seen the same data saying like, you know, after 9-11, people really concerned with nat- natural disasters. So like, okay, find scripts. Give me scripts. I think it's less discreet than that. Obvious, you know, the the decision and all the hoops you have to go through, and I, they actually did a case study on this, where they actually went back to the origins of both of those movies. And it, from my memory, it was eerie how a, two different independent groups of people who had no knowledge of each other <laughs> came up with the identical notion and hmm. and and then pushed it forward. And it wasn't until late in the game when they sort of discovered, <laughs> wait. The other studio is also making a movie like this, that's you know. Funny. Anyway, so uh, so that's one thing that I think is not really fair. The other thing is, is I loved A Quiet Place. I thought it was a yeah. really good movie, really right. tight, really um, meaningful, with also a lot of holes. But yes, yeah, I but I really like Bird Box because Bird Box is dark, like it's grim, yep. Yep. like yep. it it ha- like there, are, it does not. It's like the it's like the Game of Thrones oh, of shit. these kinds of movies where you're just... Nobody is safe. Every step of the way, you're just like, oh, no. Right. right, it, right okay, right. it just keeps whittling away at the main characters, <laughs> oh, you know? No. In, in, in a way that other movies would never... Like A Quiet Place, for example. It's like The Walking Dead in that way, you know? Well, back when The Walking Dead was 
I mean, I mean the graphic novel. Like the graphic <laughs> novel is the most depressing series yeah. I've ever read in my life, and it should be. I love that about modern stuff. They they're yeah. not afraid to kill off the main characters nowadays, right. and that's right. awesome. So with Bird Box, it's super grim, which I liked. I also liked the the they really focused on the character development. There's not a there's a whole there's long swaths in the movie where there's not a lot of action. There's a lot of fear happening. Yeah. But there's not battle with anybody, you know what I mean? And I I thought in normally a movie so if if it if the direction and the writing wasn't good, movies like this I would turn off like The Walking Dead, honestly. Season 2 of The Walking Dead, I was just like enough monologuing enough two people talking enough character development i don't care but it was just so poorly written and so purposely drawn out you could, you could kind of tell second season of walking dead they're like we don't have a lot of material here so we got to we got to lengthen these these plot points out you know how do we fill in the gaps here you know mm-hmm. whereas with bird box um, the it kept me watching you know it kept me interested and the grimness of it. I mean, there are scenes where you're just like, it's, there's this one scene, I, I won't give it away, but I'll just, for those who have seen it, when Sandra Bullock is on the boat with the yeah, two, with the yeah, two kids and she's yeah. under the blanket and she has to make this decision yeah. and these, and it's heartbreaking and you're just like, is it the Sophie's choice? It's a Sophie's choice, things, but yeah. in, in one of the worst and the kid kind of knows. It's like they got vanilla. Oh my God. They have vanilla and chocolate, right? Yeah. And as soon as they eat one or the other, they're, they're permanently out of the other. And, and it's like, you're like, do I eat the vanilla ice cream, chocolate? It's really hard, man. Wow. He's throwing you off the scent, I guess. And then, yeah. and then, and then they eat both at the same time. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but it and but the kid the kid knows and it's oh my god it is it is just just gripping and I thought Sandra Bullock did an amazing job she's great yeah I can't remember the last time I I mean Gravity I thought she was great but there's yeah. not, there, there's not a lot, there's not a ton of acting or sure. dialogue in that movie Sandra Bullock carries this movie I was even though she's a superstar I was convinced that she was this character you know yeah. I, I thought it was really well she did well, a great well job yeah. now. I will say, if you don't buy into the premise of this movie, this is one of the dumbest movies you've ever seen. <laughs> like, if if you don't buy into, because it, it starts off with it pretty quickly starts, you know, into the premise of the movie, which is basically kind of like an apocalyptic zombie-ish kind of situation. If you don't buy into the premise, well, and it's very like the reason I was saying like uh, the, the the other the, episode the happening. we did about the happening. It's. Uh, in this movie, they start killing themselves. Like the, be- the, mo- the beginning of the movie is people committing suicides for the same reason as the happening. No, I'm not saying it's literally the same things. reason. Although it, 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 there's some uh, connection there, but at the same time, the movie opens with like there's these reports of people killing themselves, and it's the same kind of like it's not quite as well done actually in a way, but it is very grim because like they are. They're just like killing themselves. I actually thought it was walking be- into fire and stuff. Like I actually that. thought it was better oh, wow. than the happening because they never really explain the this. They never really explain why it's happening. It you sort of get some glimpses into like maybe it's this, maybe it's. Oh that. no, no, that part's definitely better. I meant the, there were some scenes at the beginning of the happening that were really cool. Oh, like this is uh, they, these had some cool scenes, but not as many. But that that wasn't the point of it, you know. Having said that, there is a massive problem with this movie that I don't think is getting enough press 
which is that it completely stigmatizes people with mental illness. Oh, shit. Like, you have to watch it to see why it does this, but it basically... I mean, as I was watching it, I was like, they can't be saying that. And and, uh, the... There were so many other ways to have done that. Like, yeah. like you could have said uh, people. You could have said psychopaths, like like murderers in prison. Right. right. You didn't have to say anyone with mental. So, illness. so, so this doesn't give too much away. Essentially, whatever is happening affects almost everyone. But not everyone. No, it affects everyone except for people with. Mental oh my god! All this well, talking that, that, in code, I can't take it anymore. That's what I just said. Oh, you, but you said yeah. I, I said it affects everyone except, like you know. Yeah. Are you are people with disabilities? So what? Uh, what? Like, yeah. You, yeah. So imagine like, the happening. How does imagine it the happening? mental illness? Imagine the happening. Yeah. And people start killing themselves everywhere. Okay. And no one knows why. Okay. But they look and some some smaller percentage of people are not. Well, not only does it not affect them, it actually does affect them, but in a completely other way yeah. that is very horrible. It it essentially equates turns them to bad guys. Basically. It turns them into bad guys. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone else, it so they tur- become suicidal or antisocial or murderous, horrible. Like Ted Bundy. <laughs> Hell, they become the zombies, but they're but they're not. They're they're in control of their faculties. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're not like zombies. They're it just anyway. You yeah. have to watch yeah. it. Roma, Berto. Did you like the movie? Oh, uh, I loved Roma. Yes, and I I uh, I did enjoy it. It, it had a lot of uh, parts of it that reminded me of my childhood in Colombia. Yeah. Even and though it's in Mexico City. Even though it's in Mexico City. And that was actually fascinating that this is a movie that takes place in the 70s. 1971. And I was born in 75 in Colombia. And a lot of the a lot of the scenery, a lot of the details about th- little things like the door handles, the window handles, the bars on the windows... The types of walls, the way you park, the gar- parking garages, the cars, of course, all that stuff. It just felt so familiar to me. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because Mexico City isn't that far from the border of Texas, for example. Right. And isn't very close to Bogota. It's, yeah, it's like, I mean, Bogota's all the way like below the uh, Panama, right? It's, it's above the equator, but it's below Panama. Yeah, there's like 14 countries <laughs> yeah. or in between. I don't know how many, 10 countries in between. And yet... Uh, for some reason, the the architecture and the, the architecture accoutrement the, was right. very similar between right. the two places. Now, from some perspective, it's actually not surprising because they were both Spanish colonies, right? Oh, and okay. so, you know, it, it actually makes sense that it developed fairly in parallel in that sense. Uh, also, Mexico was the bigger economy for a lot of time, and so uh, it probably still to this day, right? So. Uh, there, there was a lot of influence. A lot of the TV shows we would watch were Mexican. A yeah, lot me- of the shows we would watch from the U.S. were translated by Mexicans, so you would hear them. And- yeah, I think last I looked, Mexico has like the 13, 13th biggest economy in the world. Yeah. You know, um, so uh, uh, so it reminded you of your childhood. But what did you think about the movie as a as a you know piece of art or as? Yeah, a- I, actually, I was really enthralled by it, and. Uh, you know, I thought it was very tense. Um, I felt really a lot of feelings for the, uh, like, the, at an outline, the movie is about this domestic service uh, gal. You know, she she works in domestic service, which she's, a, she's, a, a, she's, a, she's maid a maid slash servant. Yeah, but, like, up here in the States, that's like, oh, okay, so, like, 
rich people and they say no 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 but like in latin america middle class this was a very common thing because what would happen is the middle class that was mostly descendant from spaniards uh would employ the more native population as what they called empleadas which are like mates and they would usually live with them and they would get like a little bit of a salary free room room and board but they would be sort of like indentured servants i mean they could leave but they didn't have a lot of options. They'd right. not only be leaving their home, but also their job. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. their options for employment right. and security were so extremely limited right. that they were willing, essentially, to become a 24-7 slave. Nanny slash cleaner slash everything. And by the way, that's the other aspect, which they do a good job of representing in this movie. A lot of kids start getting raised by their... By their empleadas, you know, because like they're the ones like getting them up in the morning and feeding them and dressing them, and so uh, so the kids can develop a really strong bond as if they're part, really part of the family. And whether or not the adults are treating them like part of the family, the kids certainly start seeing them like that. Uh, not in all cases, and they were certainly me growing up. I would see a lot of abuse as well, and not even just overt abuse. I mean, more like you know, I'd go over to someone's house, and the way they would talk to the to the maid was pretty demeaning or pretty but um but in general i just felt like that whole depiction was was spot on Uh, clearly this was him uh quaron right yeah like him just like writing what he knows from his childhood like just well yeah he's explicitly said that that he grew up in uh, mexico city he basically this is basically a a biography an autobiography of his own family as they we're in Mexico City in, in the early 70s, and the family starts to go through a divorce. And he had a maid that, that raised him that he had a lot of fondness toward. Right. And he actually even reached out to her as he was making the movie, and I think he even took her to the premieres and this kind oh, of thing. Nice. Oh, nice. And cool. so Cuaron, Alfonso Cuaron, who he you know really loves this woman who is this more native Mexican woman who... Uh, had to put up with a lot of marginalization and problems. And he, he focuses the movie on her instead of on the family. So the family sort of secondary to her, her perspective. Um, For people who don't know, Alfonso Cuaron, he won a, a a, a Grammy or a Oscar for gravity for directing gravity. He made children of men. I love that movie. Yeah. Which, which this movie cinematography wise was, almost identical he yeah he's he's like uh he's developing his own directorial style where he has a camera on a on a pole that he slowly pans like you remember that shot where um uh clive clive owen is in that car and they're driving down that road oh yeah right? and it's all one shot and the camera just slowly kind of turns around and reveals it reveals the uh the the forest and you see people running and then you know it turns yep. around and like in this movie um, it's it's that same camera shot, but none of the entertainment. I, I did not I did not like this movie. Yeah, Kirk Kirk did not enjoy it. So, also, <laughs> incidentally, so uh, Children of Men is another duplicated plot because you see that sort of thing again happen in Handmaid's Tale. Where I haven't seen Handmaid's Tale. Well, I'm not giving anything away. The basic plot is right. that uh, people are losing humanity's having the losing the ability to reprocreate, reproduce see. kids, and have kids and stuff, and so it's making everybody do crazy shit. Yeah. Having said that, I think The Handmaid's Tale is a book that was written a long time ago. Uh, oh, okay. I mean, I don't quote me on I that. I don't know. I'm going to quote you on it. Yeah. But um, but yeah, so as I was... Wa- so here's my thing with Roma. I'm watching it, and 
and I'm I'm getting into it because I'm like, oh, this is interesting. It's about uh, I've never seen a movie, right. a, a well-made movie that is about because I've because knowing you, Berto, and going to actually Columbia with right. you uh, last year, I learned about this whole culture of right. these in-house maids who are kind of like family members, but you definitely get the vibe that they're not of family member status. Right. They they hang around like they're family members, like they're in the kitchen. They come over. They just come over every day. Yep. They just they just walk. Well, in. And, that, and that's more like nowadays because back in the old days, uh, like at my grandma's house, you know where the hammock would be hung. Yeah, that, there's that little room in the back. Oh, that was the maid's room. Oh, that room. Yeah. Exactly. So, <laughs> so that's interesting, right? So, so I I noticed this this woman who what who actually gave me the stink eye the entire time. <laughs> Uh, she's known, and then I talked to Berto about it. She's like, "Yeah, she's known to give. She has resting stink eye face." <laughs> and uh, and you definitely got the feeling like she was. She's definitely comfortable, but she was always working. Like she was always cleaning, yeah. always cooking. She was never just sitting down and relaxing and having a conversation. And, and imagine that in middle class America, or even anywhere, and even in rich people's houses, where you just had basically like a in-house servant that you could make them do whatever you wanted. Right. You know what I mean? Essentially. Right. right. And so in this movie, Roma, I'm like, oh, this is about this, is about this woman. And the direction I really liked, the, the scene that I, I really liked was when the dad, so the first be- beginning of the movie, the dad isn't home. And, uh, you know, then the dad comes home. And that was another thing that was very reminiscent of Bogota was like, apparently in, in Latin America, there's a lot of garages that are basically like um, courtyards of your house. Yeah. Like in the United States, you have a garage that's sort of unfinished. It's it. You definitely get a feeling like it's separate from the house. Right. Yeah. In city life in Mexico City and and in Bogota, because I saw this in Bogota, right. um, the the garage has nice tile. It has art on the wall. It the yeah. transition zone between the garage and the house is much more. Per, you know, uh, flexible. Like it doesn't yep. feel like like when you get into a garage and you walk into a house, you definitely feel like you're walking from unfinished to nice house. Yeah. Right. In in Bogota in Mexico City, the garage <laughs> is a nice space. Yeah. And often too small for the car. <laughs> and so in in Roma, uh, the the dad comes home and he parks his gigantic 1970s like <laughs> Ford, Chrysler uh, or something, and. Uh, he's trying to get it into this spot. And he's also like, there's all these shots of like, you could tell like that Corone was like, these are the images that I have of my dad. Yeah. And I have a similar association because we're, you know, I'm of similar age to him. Right. And the cars, you just kind of associate these giant cars and the dashboard with, with your dad. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I really like that scene, the way he, he sort of sequenced that. Right. It's a whole scene where the dad's trying to park his car in the garage. That's how entertaining in quotes I put this movie now so I watch halfway through the movie and I'm just like I don't know if I can get through this like I I like the style but I'm not really interested in the story when people are talking it it feels kind of like a documentary like there's no real you could tell the script isn't like a a script script it's like it feels like they just plopped a camera into a real home Hmm. and just shot a real family interacting you know like there's not there's not right. drama in the dialogue. That's what I love. <laughs> so in in the movie, um, I'm I'm like, oh, like I've this is Corona. Like this seems a little bit self indulgent. Like this must be like an autobiography. Like 
Uh-huh. How about a plot here? You know, like how about inter- you know? Then I go on the internet to look at reviews because I'm thinking, well, a lot of people must have some. No one. I haven't found a single person who agrees with me. <laughs> Every critic loves it. Every viewer loves it. Yeah. Everyone thinks it's like the best movie they've ever seen. And I'm huh. like, how am I so out of step with this? Because I love movies like this. Sure. Boyhood, I liked. A lot of people said Boyhood. Did you see Boyhood? A lot of people thought Boyhood was boring, right? Yeah, I mean, I got into a lot, lot of debates about that because I loved it. But yeah, I could see why people would find it boring. But I haven't found a single person, even on the internet, who thought Roma was boring. I well, but that's, I mean, I don't blame them. And this is part of what fascinates me about your experience. You, have, you haven't seen it, right? Dude, between running UPC and right, PhD, right, right. I'm seven days a so week So listen, right now. there are no spoilers really to, to be no, had. No. But what I'm going to say is... I'm just going to give you a little there's no smattering. Story. <laughs> I'm going to give you a smattering of the things you see during the movie. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. So, uh, pregnancy out of wedlock. Okay. Exciting. Yeah. Where, where the guy seen that before. disappears at a theater on the girl. What? With a twist. Where the, there is a huge civil strife happening in the middle of the movie where, like, essentially there are firebombs going off and people getting shot. And, and the guy who ran away from the girl who was pregnant almost shooting her in the face. That sounds right. kind of like, exciting. So, so all that is Coron in the vein of the movie is in the background. Most of that action is actually in the background of her being in the foreground. That's she, so crazy. She's not a part of the... Now, if you grew up in Mexico... So here's the thing. Like When I watch Stranger Things, I like the story. But more importantly, I am watching my childhood. Like I was sure. the age of those <laughs> sure. boys. The, the dialogue, the accoutrement you know the the music everything i'm watching my childhood that could have been a terrible tv show and i would have been you know totally in love with it because it touches on something for me that's really deep which is why i actually enjoyed uh what's the ready player one book right because even though the book is not very good it touches on all these things for my childhood. Yeah. And I, you know, saw the movie and it was a similar thing yeah. for me. I mean, um, the major plot point involves the adventure cartridge for Atari, yeah. which if you look to your right, Drain, <laughs> I have on my shelf. Oh, yeah. Right. E.T., Defender, Yars Revenge, and Space Invaders. You, you, and Asteroids. You don't get more classic than that. Man. No. No. Uh, so, <laughs> like... Um, so I get why if you were of that world, this movie would be interesting, you know, and, and it's and it's masterfully uh, <laughs> shot. It's it's artistic. Uh, it's well made. There's there's no there's no cheesy moments, you know. Um, Daughter nearly drowns. Did I mention this? No. So that scene, father runs away in the family. I'm like, like a lot of happens. So the, the final scene <laughs> I, I, I liked because yeah. of the, the way it was shot. And I guess the the story arc that it you know got to that point it felt poetic it felt i don't know interesting <laughs> to me and I, I was interested by that ending shot but but the rest of it i was just like i mean i i, I found myself watching it feeling like i need to watch this not i want to watch it like i felt like i need to watch this to know what it's like for a woman like this to go through <coughs> to go through life like i should know right not 
I'm so compelled by the story and the way this is laid out that I, I, I want more and more of it. You know what I mean? Do you think, I wonder if Birdo has the same like nostalgia because this is a nostalgic piece for him the way Stranger Things was for you. Makes me kind of wonder. Uh, yeah, obviously, but the, everyone else, the vast majority of critics have right. no connection to Latin America sure. that, you know, or didn't grow up there. And they're just, you know, these are Americans that grew up in America and are very American, and they consider the movie to be wonderful and, 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 and interesting and gripping and entertaining. And I'm just like, look, I can understand walking away going like, I, I'm glad I experienced it. And I, you know, it sort of washed over me and I bought into the artistry. But I can't imagine anyone thinking it was entertaining, but people are. They're like, the scenes and the, you know, the things that were happening. And I'm Did like, I mentioned the forest fire with the line of people <laughs> lining up to throw water at it to kill it. Oh, no. Yeah. So, so, uh, yeah, the forest fire scene. I'm like, I don't know. He's really selling this as an action movie. <laughs> when you see the scene, you're like, oh, I mean, I'm not going to, what I want to say, which I'm not going to say, but I'll say it, is that imagine a forest fire scene shot in the most boring way possible <laughs> now but i'm not saying that because looks so offended right now because <laughs> no, that's, i just think it's so funny that it's, but, but i'm in the i'm i'm literally the only i've read hundreds of reviews essentially i'm the only person who who, who thinks this way could it have been the venue maybe what so, if you saw it in yes. the theater and so, it is subtitles Oh, there's subtitles. That's but a not many. Not many because there's not a lot of dialogue. That's why I can't watch Narcos. I mean, I can, but I'm so taken out of it by reading the subtitles the whole time. So, yes, I saw this on my computer because okay. it's, it's on Netflix. Yeah. And I suspect that if I was in a theater, because I'm pretty sure I saw Boyhood in a theater. Like, I love movies. I love movie theaters. When I sit in a movie theater and watch a movie... Even bad movies, I'll I'll hand myself over to because I want to I want right. to like it. I want to be entertained. And so, in a theater, if I watched Roma, I'm guessing it would have been totally different. For I, at least I, better, I at least in a po- more positive light. I would think. Given how immersive. much, given how much everyone loves this movie, I suspect I would agree with everyone that it was one of the better, like like Moonlight, for example. Moonlight is kind of slow. Yeah. It has more action. Definitely. It has more action, I think, than than does Roma it? does. Maybe not, but I don't think so. But I l- loved Moonlight, and I saw that in the theater. And you know, Boyhood, same thing. Uh, another Cuaron movie, Itu Ma- uh, Mama Tambien, right. is also a plotless movie. Right. Uh, and I love that movie. Right. So I think I think that was part of it, you know, because d- now with Netflix, you know. You're at your computer. You got your phone. Yeah. You got distractions. Right. The dog, the cat, um, and a lot of times when I'm watching movies now, I'll I'll watch it in pieces. So yeah. I'll, I'll watch 20 minutes and then I'll do work and then the next day I'll watch another 20 minutes. And yeah. I think Roma would really be ruined that way. Huh. I, I could see that absolutely. And also, I, I frankly, if I was watching a black and white French film that I have to see all in subtitles, I'd probably get bored too. But Roma, yeah circumvents that by it has hardly any dialogue hmm. like there's not a lot of dialogue i mean you know the other thing that and I found, you don't actually need to know what they're saying to get what the gist of the scene is do you know what i mean so what about the uh, this is an offshoot what about the movie gravity with sandra bullock and george which Clooney? is a quaron movie i like is it movie. really yeah okay yeah. because it also doesn't have a lot of dialogue or plot and it's kind of like the movie twister it's everybody's a, just blown away by the graphics and the cinematography yeah, gravity is like thing. a roller coaster ride yeah. you know 
But you uh, could watch it on mute and still follow the movie yeah, to a large degree. Yeah, yeah. So what, one of the things that I loved about this movie, in addition to the fact that it brought me back to my childhood, is the movie is told from the perspective of the maid. Yeah. Not only from her perspective, but actually from the perspective of that world. The, all the, the things revolved around her reality of who she associates with, what she's able to do, where she's able to go, and sort of like the limitations of that, of that environment. And yet, uh, you catch all these little bits of the storyline happening to the family. Like, for example, there's no big dramatic scene where the wife and the dad fight and then he leaves in a huff. Instead, there's little bits and pieces. You're like, oh, I think something's not quite right. And then all of a sudden, she's like, yeah, uh, they're saying goodbye to him because he's going on a business trip. You're like, oh. And then later, a little later, it's like, uh, he's not coming back, you know, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then you pick up on these little bits all f- from like what she's all almost picking up because she's not privy to everything that happens in the no, family. I would and, assume. No, exactly. Yeah, and so you're you're sort of like just like watching it through her experience, and I thought that that was really good. Yeah. Okay. It also there is this social. I don't know how much he meant it, but I I, I believe he did. Uh, there's a social commentary because these are people that are, you know, like treated at, in a lot of cases as subhuman, you know, and yet they become part of these families. They become totally part of these families. Now, in this case, they showed that she actually was treated pretty nicely by by the family. Uh, but that wasn't, uh, you know, that's not the case in general. She could have been horribly abused and nobody would have done and, anything. And, and they show this really well in that when she, she's terrified to tell her patrona, the the the, the, the madame that's basically the, the head of the house, right? She's, terrified of telling her that she's pregnant because she's sure she's going to get let go right how did she get pregnant uh this was the the guy that she she was her boyfriend who ran ran out on her okay yeah and so that's the other thing it's out of wedlock it's all these things right uh and they do a good job of like that that terror of like oh my god i'm gonna and she just got lucky in this case they you know they 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 helped her out and things like that but so you can really identify with the culture and totally yeah yeah i mean because i grew up in in that middle class where when i was a kid there's still enough money in the house that we did have a maid and on my on my other side of family there were definitely there was definitely money for maids uh so i saw all that right growing up and like you know who were the the people who ran the household were more let's just say it lighter skinned you know they were clearly more descendant from the iberian peninsula and yet the people who were the domestic employees were usually darker skinned they were more the native looking people they were either from the coastal region or the inner part of the country but usually way more native and that was an outgrowth of the colonial times because that was this very stratified society that that's how it worked yeah yeah so if you dislike the movie even slightly i would uh, very much appreciate you reaching out to us because I can't find a single negative thing being Kurt said about needs this. Some one. company desperately needs some validation. Uh, so I want to take a break, and then after the break, I actually want to go to another recording, an interview that I did with Dr. Paul Barry, a listener to this podcast, a patron actually, and he is, has launched a while ago this uh, organization called Thero.org, which is a uh, he's trying to create a much more democratic, a much more useful, much more, um, I don't know, useful 
online directory for all mental health clinicians. Oh, wow. Uh, because that doesn't really exist right now. No, it does not. Uh, so let's take a break. and we get back, let's go to that interview. Hey, deserving listeners. Today, we're going to talk about access to mental health and about um, the problems that I actually have. I didn't really know about until I started this podcast. People would email me and say that they're struggling with this or that, and I would and I would talk with them a little bit over email or something, and then I'd say, you know what, this is probably a really good thing to be talking with a therapist about. And even people in the United States, they would say to me, I, there aren't really any seemingly good therapists in my area, or I don't know how to access them, or I've tried it and it didn't work, or my insurance doesn't pay enough, or... I went to with I just got an email from someone today telling me that they went to a therapist and it was this disastrous situation and and he was like convinced that all female therapists hate men you know just from one experience based on his you know sort of worldview and so I was trying to convince him that it's possible that it was just a bad female therapist and that you know other female therapists are not likely to have a you know, create a relationship with you that is, that feels so bad, you know? And so, uh, it's something that comes up a lot and it's actually something I don't know that much about. I mean, I'm in, I'm in private practice and my practice has been full for a long time. So I don't really bump up against the issues that clients face. I mean, I guess one, one way I bump up against the issue of access to mental health, healthcare is, People contact me on a daily basis to hire me as their therapist, whether it's locally or, you know, around the world due to the podcast. And I have to say that I, one, you know, can't legally treat people outside of my licensing area, but also I, my practice is full. So I guess on some level, I'm part of the problem, you know, I'm turning people away and, and I, and I feel if they're in my area, if they're in Seattle, I know who to refer them to. But if they're in some other area, I'm just like, I have no idea, I, you know, look in the phone book. I don't know. Google, blah, blah, blah. So I thought I'd have a special guest on the podcast today to, to talk about this in general. Uh, please introduce yourself to the podcast, please. Hey, everybody. I'm uh, Paul, Dr. Paul Berry, um, and I'm the co, co-founder and executive director of Thero.org, a nonprofit that is about connecting people to the right resource. Can you relate to some of the things I was saying? Yeah. And actually a lot of the people, a lot of those same things are, I have conversations about them all day long, talking to therapists and thought leaders on this. Um, I did my dissertation in help seeking. Actually, I just recently graduated uh, about a year ago and um, from, with my doctorate in clinical psychology. And uh, in my research, I was, that's actually how the, the whole idea for Thero started was I was doing research initially about stigma, but then thought I would do my dissertation more on help seeking once I found out how bad as a profession we are at it. So was your dissertation on stigma? Well, actually my dissertation began on stigma, the idea, you know, you're doing all this kind of, what am I going to do for dissertation exploration? And um, I realized that of the people who say that they have a a significant problem in their life that they should see a therapist for, only about 40% will actually seek it. So that 60% has a huge, there, there's a, a lot of reasons for that, that that 60% won't seek it, um, stigma being one of them. But then the 40%, when they do go to seek it, it takes about seven to 10 years on average for them to actually get help. Oh and, my God. 
And that's when, that's when, when they start the search process, when they con, you know, contact a friend or tell a friend about it, or the majority of, of referrals actually come through primary care physicians, their doctor. They'll go to their doctor and be having a conversation about physical health, and then the doctor will kind of identify that, you know, this is depression or this is something else that is going on. And then uh, medical doctors are also not very good at connecting people to help. And, and, and I don't think it's a fault of any individual thing. I think it's just more of as a, as a uh, system-wide, that we don't have the things in place that are necessary to help people. Right. I mean, a big problem of it is stigma, right? As you're saying, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, in re- relation to medical providers, anecdotally for myself, when I go to my physician for, you know, something and uh, like I had gastric reflux for a little bit and he was like, um, you know, and I was asking him, what are the causes? And he's like, well, you know, if you eat late at night or if you drink a lot of caffeine or, you know, or stress, you know, and he kind of looked mm-hmm. a little funny and he's a younger guy, <laughs> and, you know, smart and blah, blah, blah. And he's just like, so, you know, maybe if you're stressed out and he knows that I'm a clinician. So, but, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. but he, asked, he asked me pretty, you know, firmly, but if I were someone who was ashamed of my stress or something, um, you know, I would probably respond like, oh, no, I'm fine, or I feel fine. And, and then he just sort of let it go. I, I don't think mm-hmm. he, it's his job necessarily to press it. But I think that's just something that happens a lot. You know, you have the stigma and the lack of awareness in the patient. And then you have the physician who is worried about insulting or stigmatizing mm-hmm. their, yeah. their patient. And it's not really their job. They don't get paid to uh, force people into mental health, you know? Yeah. And, and or they don't even know what questions to ask or they don't, or they don't have time, you know? Yeah, I think the big thing is they don't have time often. And we, we have two, uh, purposefully, we have two medical doctors on our board. And we have a lot of conversations about the medical system and, um, and the, the interaction with mental health, uh, they're not, they're not really trained for it, but then even if they were the average, uh, kind of interaction between a medical doctor and their patient is 15 minutes if you're lucky and to address, to bring up uh, depression, for example, in a 15 minute conversation where you're trying to deal with other medical health issues, that's a, it's a pretty short window to, to identify it, address it, and then refer out there, that, just isn't kind of possible in that moment. Yeah. And that doesn't even count all the other conditions that one might suffer from more, um, you know, subtle uh, conditions. Depression is pretty Mm -hmm. well understood. I would imagine by, you know, most physicians, but things like dissociation or PTSD Mm -hmm. or um, other kinds of conditions are, or personality disorders for that matter are Mm -hmm. not likely to be um, even flagged by, by a physician yeah, they actually just um, in a. I'm not sure which states, but but recently there's been a big discussion about uh, trying to force medical doctors to, as part of their process, ask about depression, just because it's such a such a huge issue. And you know, a number of doctors were resistant because it adds another yet another thing to that that interaction. And but it's so important because it actually technically is their job. If you're if you're focused on health, um, to say, oh, you know, you have this kind of medical condition going on and also depression, but we're not really going to think about that or talk about that. It's, it's a little bit, um, no, well, not a little bit. It, it's pretty important. It's a pretty important aspect of your health that if you're just ignoring it or don't have time to talk about it. Yeah. And part, part of the issue is, you know, 
and things are changing in terms of integrative care, mm-hmm. uh, but the therapists like myself work in my office all by myself and rarely interact with other professionals, you know, mm-hmm. and then you have all the physicians <laughs> who work in a clinic who work with pharmacists and nurses and, uh, you know, other people that you work with at a clinic and never the twain shall meet. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. There's, no, yeah. There's the crossover, uh, influence, right. Yeah. It, it would be a lot different. of it is called silo, like we're right. siloed into these different buckets that don't yeah. interact and, yeah. yeah. And, and it can work the opposite way too. If for a therapist, we should be screening more for medical conditions and, mm-hmm. and, and we fail a lot in that way. So it's not like yeah. physicians are the only ones. And, yeah. uh, but we're heading more towards integrative care. I, I, I keep hearing about all these movements and little pockets at hospitals and this kind of thing, but, uh, but it, it seems like it's a long way off. And mm-hmm. there's pros and cons to that, you know. It's like, do I want to work at a clinic? No, <laughs> you know, I'd rather <laughs> I'd rather work in my home office, you know. So uh, there's there's pros and cons to it. But anyway, so uh, I, I just have a couple curious questions about your dissertation. Yeah. So, so the other, so there's sixty uh, percent of people who uh, had an initiate. So they they had a thought of just like, geez, I need to talk to a mental health person. Sixty percent of those people never actually sought help. Is that, is that your finding? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not just, not just help from a mental health professional, but from anybody, they won't talk to anybody about it. And, right. oh, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll let you continue with the question, but that, yeah, that, I just want to make that clear that it's not just met, uh, mental health or medical health resource that they're not really connecting with anybody about it. They're, they're keeping it to themselves. Right. And of those people who did not seek help, part of the reason was stigma. What, what were the other reasons? Um, a lot of them are not thinking they can afford therapy, just assuming that uh, therapy isn't something for them um, because they can't financially afford it or they don't have time for it. They don't have the space in their life for it. What I'm speaking about is largely from the World Health Organization, WHO data, um, and, and they do studies on this about uh, uh, help seeking and utilization of services. And yeah, the, the biggest reasons are stigma, affordability, and then access if they live in a, in a rural area where there's just not the resources there. And then seven to 10 years yeah. is the average time it takes for someone to connect with a, uh, the, the correct or appropriate professional. Is that what you found? Yeah, kind of unbelievable, right? I didn't, I didn't believe that when I first heard it. I thought it was a little bit alarmist and, you know, this must be one study. And, uh, but the more that uh, I dove into it, the more I saw that that's a pretty consistent number in the help-seeking research. That it's, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, it's in a way demoralizing, but it also, for me, I was recognizing that it's an opportunity to have a really big impact. And so I dove in and was trying to figure out why is that number like that? And, and what would you what you find? Um, this isn't this isn't from my dissertation. My dissertation was much more specific, a very specific thing to social anxiety, um, which is what I'm going to be opening a private practice, and uh, that's something that I, I really want to focus on is social anxiety. But really, from the experience of building out Thero, I've been building Thero for the past actually this year will mark seven years. The that from conception, uh, we launched in 2015, but. From the experience of, of building Thero and looking at the, re- the help-seeking research and trying to figure out how could we actually fix this problem, I think the biggest, the, the biggest problem is that it's not financially viable. It's not, it's not financially, well, it's financially viable. It's not lucrative, though. 
a lot of the directories that are out there, I think there are some good directories out there. I think there are some mediocre directories out there, but a lot of the things that need to be done to, to have somebody be confident in the provider that they're seeing are not being done. And it doesn't really reward directories financially to have that in there. Interesting. Yeah, the main directory, correct me if I'm wrong, is Psychology Today, their directory, correct? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're the kind of standard bearer. For example, that, that example you had where somebody calls you and you say, you know, I don't really know, like I'm full, but I don't really know the, in your specific area. A lot of therapists will say, go to Psychology Today because either I'm on there or I know somebody on there that it's kind of the trusted one. I think they're good. I think it's just that the directory isn't good enough. What we're trying to do is reinvest the money that we're making from that into the help-seeking process to improve the help-seeking process right. and create and, and innovate in the space. You know, we don't need to be a big-time player, but I think if we're able to add a little bit more competition and creativity in the help-seeking space, that that will have to push other directories to be better. And kind of an all, you know, the, what is it, what's that saying? The uh, tide raises all boats type of thing where, where we'll try to try to bring some of that to happen. But yeah. So you're trying to create or have created something that you believe is, is better for consumers and for clinicians than something like psychology today. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that that is the case. And I think there's a lot of things that we have already done and some things that we have planned that I think will, um, will make it a lot better than the average directory out there. Um, and, and I, by the way, I don't want to pick on psychology today. They are good and they're great people and, it, and it's a great thing. It's just, they're the, they're the main one that is that people go to the main trusted one. That people yeah, go to. Right. I mean, psychology today, I I've, you know, I'm old enough to have seen this actually emerge from my vantage point, which is that in the beginning, therapists weren't on the internet at all. Right. I, mm-hmm. when I became a therapist, the internet was, um, I mean, a thing for like university people in the mid nineties. And as time progressed, uh, uh, the internet took off and therapists didn't really take to it. Um, so, and magazines didn't take to it like psychology today, but then at a certain point, um, psychology today being the most popular psychology magazine out there, you know, they went digital and then they started to offer these, um, directories because I think they actually used to sell advertising to therapists in their back pages and maybe that's how mm-hmm. it got how it got connected yeah. and in the beginning psychology today was just one of many different random uh, unknown places where therapists could post their um, their information for people to find and then over time just out of like organic uh, word of mouth or mm-hmm whatever, or the resources that Psychology Today had to kind of dedicate to their uh, UI. Psychology mm-hmm. Today, about, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, just emerged as like this dominant player. Yeah, the leader. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, who's second? Like good, um, good therapy? Is that? Is- yeah, I would, I would say of, of the directories, I really like good therapy. I like what, we're, what they're doing. Um, I think they are, they're on to something in terms of noticing that um, there's, there's not a great way to vet a therapist. There's, there's not, and, and I think that's where, that's part of the creation of good therapy from what I've read about them and, and that from, from their own kind of um, story that they've put out, that they, they've seen kind of the bad things that happen in our field, the unethical things, and I think at the same time probably saw people on those directories that they either knew of or things like that that they might not refer a client to. And 
And that's, I think, one of the big things that is happening right now is that the, the resource that you're getting is not the best resource for you necessarily. It's the resource who has done the best marketing or worked the hardest, like paid, paid the most for marketing or worked the hardest to, to market. And um, that's, that's how most of searches happen online. They, they will start there. And um, that's, it's just not something that I think is the best way. I think that's actually one of the, one of the challenges to building a, a good directory is not having it be, not having the referral be based on the financial reward that you're, you're putting into the system, have it be based on if you're the best resource for that person. Right. You know, again, because uh, psychology, they emerged early as the leader, then all therapists, as soon as they opened a private practice, just knew like, well, I got to go to psychology today. I I don't Mm -hmm. know. I don't know if it's the best directory, but it is the, by far the leader. And so um, I've got to go there. It wasn't a matter of like, well, what's the best directory to go to? You know, it sort of be like in the old days, the, the yellow pages was a business and there were other directories, but they never emerged because you just had to go with the yellow pages because the yellow pages was just so ubiquitous in people's homes. And, and uh, so to defend psychology today a little bit, it's like yeah. they, they never set out to say, okay, we are going to be this, you know, cutting edge, uh, all encompassing holistic service to the public. Mm-hmm. They, they are just, they're a business, they're a magazine and they just have this directory and they're just like, you know, if people want to post here then, and they want to pay, and it costs like 30 bucks a month or something to, to mm-hmm. have an account there. And, yeah. uh, it's, um, you know, they're, that's not their mission. You know, their mission is just to provide uh, this, I mean, I don't know their mission particularly, but it seems like their mission is just like, look, you know, we're just going to be the popular directory in it and you know that's and it'll be easy to search by your zip code and all that kind of stuff yeah Um, and that's and i think it's i think that is a i'm glad they're there and i'm glad that that is that is happening because otherwise i think i haven't seen a directory that does it really well there's actually one in uh portland there there's uh i'd have to look it up but there's a great one in portland that is kind of slick interface like really good things but none of them have gotten to the level of trulia or zillow like the house hunting websites have you seen those yeah. Um, I love those. Those are, that's, that's what the mental health industry should have. And that's what we've built. Uh, we've, it's almost, it's not perfect, but it's almost to the, to that functionality where you can look on a map by location, zoom in, zoom out, all of that. That's what a lot of directories don't have is that, that level of user interface, uh, to be able to sort them granularly. And then we're using that directory to do innovative things, to make the process, not just faster, but actually better data fidelity, better trust in the provider that you're going to see. Like I'll tell you one example of something that I think every directory should have, and I'm hoping that we can push people to, to include this. License verification. Uh, that's the minimum. Uh, if, if you're deciding, that's, that's the best way right now, you or me or anybody from the public can say, this, this therapist I trust enough. But that, that metric, what that's saying is, this therapist went through a certain amount of training and hasn't messed up so bad that um, somebody has reported them, either a colleague or a friend. Um, so it's kind of the minimum standard of care. And there's not really much reliable data anywhere else. There, other than that, like you, so therapists, um, all therapists know that there's licensing boards and you can go to a licensing board and look up a license. And sometimes if there's a report against that person, there'll be an investigation. And if there's an investigation, the licensing boards in each state are required to write up a narrative of what the investigation was. 
And as a member of the public, as a therapist, anybody can access that. You can go and look up that your therapist license and see if there's see if there's a uh, uh, you know a report against them in an investigation. You, you can look up that PDF. Um, but no one knows how to do that, or that they even can. You know. Yeah, I, I, and this is informal. Don't don't quote me on these statistics because it's more me just every day talking to therapists and to people, and you know I'm trying to get people interested in this topic. Um, it's I would say 99% of the public that I talk to don't know that that's a thing. They right. don't. And they've been some people who have seen therapists for years and said, Oh, I can look up my therapist license. Right. Um, so no, none of the public are using it. I would and say about, it, most therapists don't even know you can do that. Yeah. Well, well actually I would say 90% of therapists know you can do that or, or sorry, that most therapists know that you can do that, but they only use it for looking themselves up to make sure that nobody's reported against them yeah. when they're referring the, the referral process and the collaboration between providers, that siloed effect, that, that is part of the problem of we don't know how to refer as, a, as an industry. We can't, you and I don't have a place where I can look up uh, therapists that I trust. Like I have a list, uh, kind of my own referral list that, I, that I've been collecting resources, uh, all types of resources, not just individual therapists, but clinics, hospitals, treatment centers, crisis lines, nonprofit organizations that do advocacy and support groups, things like that. So, you're, so you're, you're saying that thero.org will provide a way for us to curate a list, like our best of yeah. list, is that you're saying? Yeah, like as therapists. So, so the, the big two problems in the research that I found were the public doesn't know how to search for help. There's, and, there's, and it's not their fault. It's, there's no reliable place for data. They right. go to a directory. You make a phone call to one therapist who says they're accepting clients. Uh, they say, no, I'm not accepting clients right now. And sorry, I can't really refer you to anybody. I don't, I don't really know who you should see. Um, so kind of, you know, or they might say, Hey, hey, here's a couple people. I know a couple people that might work. Um, but that, that takes a long time for the therapist to do. So they can't really do that. But that's a, that's a problem of the, the public seeking help. The other problem is that as internally referrals that happen, referrals between providers, we don't know how to do that. Well, a lot of what happens is right now, um, There'll be email lists that will have different organizations or different groups of therapists will get together and have an email list of referrals. And somebody will put an email out that says, hey, I have a client who, not, not giving the identifying information, although some do and definitely shouldn't be doing that. But uh, some people will say, you know, I'll give the demographics and the presenting problem and some in the general area of where that person lives, who's available. A bunch of therapists jump on it, call. You don't know if that person is already, that referral is already taken. It's just really chaotic. And then there's, there's therapist groups online on Facebook that all of this is happening on social networks that are designed to mine data, to mine data and sell it to other people. And so that I don't think is an appropriate space to be talking about clients. Like an organization like that that is geared towards profit is not really a great space to be doing that. And that's what we're, we've built a, a national directory for mental health resource that's more comprehensive than anything that's existed before. And by that, I mean all of those resources are there the clinics, hospitals, treatment centers, individual therapists, um, crisis lines, and the uh, nonprofit organizations. We have about 22,000 clinics, hospitals, and treatment centers, but we're light on the individual therapists. We don't have a lot of those. We have about close to 200 now. Um, and we're trying to grow that, that aspect out. But it's the national directory for the public, a free directory, and it's free for therapists to list and clinics to list. And, and it's a... Um, the community for therapists that is built specifically to make referrals easy. That's, that's our two goals. Referrals and for 
consumers to find the right clinician? Yeah, that's what the directory would be, the public directory that, um, so there's, so therapists when the, in our, in Thero system, therapists would sign up and can, can list their, their business in the directory, their private practice um, in the directory. They can be part of a community that's also free. Um, the, the listings are free for the, the business listings and the clinics and hospitals and treatment centers, which is another big problem with paid directories. You're not actually seeing all of your options there. Right. But then in the community, there's tools that there's one there that facilitate communication between therapists. It's not HIPAA compliant. So it's not something that should be, you know, people should be kind of discussing clients and things like that. We're, we're, we're thinking about working on something like that, but that's a much bigger fundraising task. You could contact a clinic or an individual practitioner and say, so do you specialize in trauma or something? Yeah. Yeah. You can talk. We have live chat and, um, and kind of an inbox type of uh, asynchronous communication. But then also there's, we're, we're building currently a place to say, uh, like to post referrals where people can say, you know, I have a client who, I, I have a client who say social anxiety, for example, in this area and has some of these details. That listing goes into, into the directory. And if it matches somebody on your referral list, it will contact them saying, Hey, you're, you know, a colleague who has you on the referral list, you know, just posted a referral and you can, you should go take a look at this because they might be interested in referring to you. And then you would contact that therapist. It's just, oh, that's just, yeah, that's, that's really great. So you're wanting to be a free place and if it takes off and becomes popular, then it'll be like the Google of mental health uh, providers. Yeah, it's it, well. So, so we're the listing in the directory. Like, we're not gonna we're not gonna charge for referrals, like posting referrals or or looking at referrals. But the uh, the listings in the directory, we're using kind of a freemium model where a therapist can list for free, and then they can upgrade their listing to like that. That's one way we're hoping to make money. But we're largely going to be doing grants and and donations, and then also events. Like, we're listing uh, events of like therapy groups um, and things that nonprofits are are events that nonprofits are holding things like that. And there's no free listing for the events, but that's another area where we think we'll be able to make enough money to support a lot of these, these goals and these projects. And this will be a side job for those involved, or is it going to be a primary job for anybody? Um, it has been my primary job for the last six years. Um, and a lot of it, eventually we hope to make it a, a full-time job for, there is about four of us that that have been working on this, uh, largely volunteer time. Um, and we actually just got a, last year we got a grant from uh, the Gannett Foundation and to, to run our crisis therapy project, which is another kind of innovative thing that we're doing using the directory for good. Um, What's that offering? Um, so the crisis therapy project is uh, improving the way that we field national response, a therapeutic response to national crisis and natural disasters. And um, largely it's a um, group of, of nonprofit organizations that, that do this type of response. And we meet on a monthly basis to talk about how to improve the process and then implement changes so that we can feel the response a lot quicker. And what that looks like is we would contact therapists and say, hey, we really want you to, um, if you have space on your, on your schedule, uh, offer free therapy. We were able to feel the response for the most recent one is a thousand Oaks 
uh, attack, um, the Parkland shooting, and then the Las Vegas attack. And we were able to really quickly field responses for those so that people can go search for free therapy and the, and have a main website that they can, a main web page that they can go to for each specific attack. Like you will be continuing to do that on a regular basis for each attack. Yeah, that's amazing. I hadn't thought about that, that that would be a natural and fairly easy thing to design. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not complicated, but yeah, it takes a lot of, it's not lucrative either. Right. Uh, And, but you know, it, raises the profile of, of your, you know, nonprofit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And one one thing we're finding is um, a a lot of therapists are so willing to offer that, um, that free therapy, they they have a space on their schedule and they say, you know, this, I'm in the community that is affected by the shooting or this natural disaster, but it's, it's hard to connect and they'll form, they'll form a PD, like, like say an organization will create a PDF of therapists who are willing to do that. Um, this happened in Charlottesville. Actually, the, the idea for the crisis therapy project came up when a counselor in Charlottesville belonged to an organization there of counselors and they had got a bunch of therapists together willing to offer therapy, free therapy. And then they, they didn't know how to promote it. They didn't, they couldn't get the word out. So nobody was really using it. The public didn't know about it. And when he signed up for Thero, he said, hey, you know, is, is there any way Thero can help with this? And we, we were generating some ideas and the crisis therapy project kind of followed from that. Yeah, that's fantastic. And there's so many clinicians in situations like that who really want to do something mm-hmm. and have no, including myself, and have no venue for where to go. You know, it's like, well, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, want to, I want to help. Who do I call, you know? Um, yeah. You know, then I guess a natural inclination would be to call the police, but of course they've got you know, bigger fish to fry than stuff like that. So um, that's interesting. Okay. So thero.org, you're wanting to become a, uh, I mean, so a big difference between it and the, the leaders in clinician directories is that it's free for everybody for the most part. And that, um, you know, everyone can register on there. Uh, that's great. Which um, in and of itself if it became popular it would, you know, just be a huge boon to society if, if everyone knew about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also mentioned like quality control and mm-hmm. um, you know, checking people's licenses and, you know, whether or not there's any complaints, uh, you know, founded against them. Um, can you tell, talk more about that? Like, cause I'm, I'm looking at, you know, your site right now and I can see people, you know, people's um, uh, profiles mm-hmm. and, uh, I'm just wondering like how, how that all works because you know, I'm just imagining say, I don't know, you have some kind of some worker who looks periodically at complaints and then publishes it on this person's um, profile page. Well, I imagine the clinician would be like, uh, I'm just going to cancel my page. <laughs> like I don't, or yeah. why are you doing this to me? Like you're <laughs> exactly, you're, you're that, ruining my career, you know? Yeah. That's actually exactly what we want to have happen. Not, I don't, I'm not trying to ruin careers. I'm trying to make it so that um, it's so easy for the public to find that information. My job isn't to be the arbiter of what's good therapy or not good therapy or what therapist is better or not. It's to put, to make it so easy for the public to be able to find reliable information about um, a therapist that 
they can make informed decision about that therapist or about that clinic and hospital and treatment center or about the, the nonprofit um, and give uh, therapists that same ability, probably even, even superpower ability to do that where I w- our goal with the community is to make it so easy for you and me to find referrals that we would never make a decision based on, do I need to make ends meet this month? That there's no, we would see, we would only see clients that fit us well and, we know we can do good work with them. And right now that's not really happening. Right. People, I know people that have been like, you know, I know somebody that might be a little bit better for this person than I am, but you know, I, I kind of, I, I, my, my client load is light. So I have to do that. Yeah. 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 I like that idea for sure. Uh, I just got a little excited when you were talking about this issue and I was like, Oh, this would be a great place to like, you know, just, you could do a search for like, all the therapists in my area who have uh, marks against them, you know, just some sort of um, way of finding those people or, um, or uh, even just a morbid curiosity about how I, I have a people who listen to this podcast. know I have kind of a, <laughs> I get a little uh, giddy yeah, about yeah, yeah. <laughs> therapists being sued. Have you listened to those episodes? Yeah. Yeah. I think I have. Yeah. Yeah. I think I know what you were saying. Yeah. It's just kind of, um, it's a morbid, it's like, you know, rubbernecking on the freeway or something. It, just watching a therapist uh, make a series of mistakes and then get successfully sued is just some kind of like sick pleasure I have. And so I was looking forward to that. But what you're saying essentially is that with Thero, if they're not on there, it could mean they just haven't signed up or it could mean that they're actually avoiding it for fear of being outed as someone who has a problem. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm saying like that is a possibility, but I'm not saying um, I don't think we have any type of market share to say that at all. And I don't I don't expect that we would. Yeah, because some therapists don't you know, some therapists might end up moving to coaching, for example, or some therapists might say I might work with a population that is is so um, that is so uh, kind of percentage wise tends to sue at a much higher rate. Like I think of couples therapy, just statistically, they tend to sue a lot more because of the nature of, you know, you're, you're, it's two people, it's a disagreement, there's a lot of chances to make mistakes. Um, other disorders that, that therapists work with, um, other, other kind of populations that therapists work with are more likely to sue. So I don't think that's a good metric. Even if you, even if you see that there's a, a um, mark against their license or an investigation, read that investigation because it might actually vindicate the therapist and say, wow, that was totally frivolous. Like that was a vengeful, a vengeful uh, allegation. And a lot of those narratives, you can, you can tell a certain tone from it. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I have a supervisee who has been complained about and I won't go into the details, but uh, in my opinion, it was um, frivolous and um, petty, I guess is a way to put it and not yeah. and not founded it was even anyway i won't go into details but yeah yeah, yeah you're right you're right uh, I, I you know i'm just being uh, <laughs> a, a rubbernecker um but but actually i do that's one of the things i love about your podcast is that uh your honesty and directness of it like that that is something i think is really often lacking in this field is uh we want to do good and we, but we don't want to step on toes and i do think that there will that that's one of another one of the reasons why the, the a directory like this isn't really there because people aren't willing to say you know this is a, a lot of times i will say you know i'm kind of pessimistic about what you're doing because 
it can be turned into something that would like, you know, there's a lot of, there's problems with it, but I think there are even bigger problems with the way that we're doing it right now. Um, And we're, we're really wanting to be thoughtful about it and not do it, you know, not launch something really quick and, um, and cheap and, and all that. We're wanting to make it iterative year after year, it gets better. And it's therapist driven, like therapists are giving us feedback about, like you said, you know, like that, like, would, would that mean this? Does that mean that you're not a good therapist if you're on there? And we want to think through that. Yeah. So what kinds of uh, criticism or concerns do you hear from therapists and other people? Um, uh, I think the biggest one is you don't have enough money to pull this off. I don't, I don't have faith that you can do it. And I think you're going to be overshadowed by organizations that just have more money. And I've heard that for the past seven years and it's just taken diligent work. Uh, a lot of hours that I've put in a lot of thought, a lot of conversations, and we just have to keep moving forward consistently because I actually think money, like, like money is actually part of the problem. Organizations that have a lot of money or get, you know, or an organization, because we, we kind of debated, are we going to make this a for-profit or non-profit? Um, and we had to go non-profit, we realized, because there are organizations that the process is, have this idea, I have this really great idea, and it would help kind of society if we did it like this. They get a bunch of investors in. Um, they, they get million, literally millions of dollars in, invested into this. And then uh, the investors want to maximize profit. So they gut a lot of the social mission aspect of it and just gear it towards like, let's make this super efficient to make money. And then the consumer doesn't actually get the best resource for them. The, 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 peop, the directory itself is not made for that. Um, and, and that's, I think, probably the biggest problem that I've seen in and why this doesn't exist yet is that people can't make money off. And I think that's kind of in society happening a lot right now where there's, you know, controversy makes more money. And uh, I, th- I think you've actually, there was a great conversation you had on one episode where it was that, that about that. I um, can't remember the person you were talking to, but you know, if, if you as a, as a podcast were more controversial, just willing to kind of take an extreme view, um, would you be more fi- financially successful? Yeah, I think the reality is, yeah, I think I think you would, you could make a bunch of money like that, but yeah. to have a thoughtful process about help seeking and actually have an impact on society and the health of society on a grand scale, that's what I I'm really that's what wakes me up in the morning. I'm I'm like I wake up thinking about the directory and yeah, and, and it just is it, it I get really excited about it. Have you seen any success so far? I mean, people who will say that without Thero they wouldn't have been able to connect so easily or quickly? Um, I think we, we've heard, we've heard that we've, we've definitely gotten thanks from people saying, Hey, I really, you know, and, and some donations from that too, where people say, Hey, I, I really love what you guys are doing. I have, I've been struggling trying to find a therapist that I can, I can rely on. And, and I was able to find it on here and we've had therapists say, Hey, I got my first client from here, you know, that, that kind of thing. But we're still, we're still early in the process. We launched in 2015 legitimately. Uh, it w- I've been building the idea and the website for a long time, but we launched in 2015 legitimately and they have been improving the directory over time. And I think just now we're at a point where I feel confident to bring it out to the world, which is why I, I reached out to you to say, Hey, I'd love to talk about this and not just Thero, but the problem. I really want to bring the problem to the forefront and have people discuss that of when I see, when I see people and organizations making so much money from, not doing something as effective as this, it frustrates me. And it, and it makes me just kind of say like, let's, 
let's move this forward. Let's, let's keep doing that. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a great idea. And if it takes off, I think it would make much more sense. I mean, the, again, just the feature of it being free alone is a huge step forward for consumers and for clinicians. Uh, if, if we're really trying to do a call out to clinicians who have space in their, in their schedule um, and who have experience with trauma and crisis therapy, uh, specifically for Thousand Oaks, but other things in general, so that it's not just about doing the current response, but every response as we move forward, we want to be more ready for the next response. So if, if you are a therapist that offers that, um, or, or a counselor or, or a psychiatrist, or, like we, we need those people in the directory who are wanting to prepare for crisis and make our communities more resilient for the future when there is a school shooting in your area or there is a natural disaster. For us as therapists to be able to quickly deploy on a large scale if we're doing free therapy and have that, that's a, another example of why those, the license certification and those qualifications things are so important. And, and for, for crisis, especially, we have to be able to do that. So sign up is, is that. Yeah, great. Thanks, Dr. Paul Barry. Again, that's thero.org, T H E R O.org. You can go there just to check it out. You can sign up there as just a regular clinician. It's free. You can also uh, check out the crisis intervention, crisis therapy offering, which I think is a great service. I, I, you know, me and I, I know a lot of other clinicians, we want to provide pro bono services occasionally. We don't want to do it a lot because we can't pay our bills otherwise. But I think the crisis therapy would be a wonderful way to meet that need. And it's technically an ethical responsibility of ours to um, to do things along those lines. Um, so uh, not only is it a should, but it's a, it's a desire for a lot of people. So I think that that's interesting. So thanks for joining me. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for, for having me on. And uh, let me know how it goes. Yeah, yeah, I will. I'll keep in touch. All right, well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in the Saddle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do.